0: Good morning, Sanctus Church. Thanks for joining us this Good Friday. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever been forsaken? If there's one word more chilling, more heavy, more painful, it is the word forsaken. To be forsaken is to be deserted by others, abandoned and left completely alone. When people forsake you, they withdraw from you entirely. They have nothing more to do with you. They act like you don't exist. Feeling forsaken is worse than loneliness. Let's say if you were in need or in distress and you're counting on someone to be there to stand by you, but he or she is nowhere to be found. That's an awful feeling and experience to go through. Now, have you ever felt that God was doing that to you, especially after you've built a relationship with him, put your trust in him, and you've devoted your life and your time to serve him? Maybe now you're going through a very difficult moment in your life, and it seems that God has abandoned you. Your prayers that were once heard and answered, now when you pray, there's no response. It's as if God has turned a deaf ear to you and your cries for help. Some loss, some tragedy, some devastation in your life has shaken the foundation of your faith. And maybe you're left to wonder, like the psalmist, when he writes, Why do you stand afar, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? You are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you cast me off? Do you know, during the earthly ministry of Jesus, many people asked him questions, some to trap him, others out of good intentions. Jesus himself often responded with a question. But it's amazing to think even Jesus had unanswered questions. On the day that Jesus died, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness covered the land, and on the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., Jesus cried this heart-wrenching question, As recorded in Matthew 27, 45 to 46, and Mark 15, 33 to 34, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus asked a question for which he did not receive an answer. At the baptism of Jesus and at the transfiguration of Jesus, there was a declaration from heaven, the voice of God resounding from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. But at the crucifixion, only silence and darkness. Jesus is left with his unanswered question as human beings. We struggle for answers and we wonder Wouldn't did this been the best time for an answer? Wouldn't it have been the optimal time for God to assure Jesus with his voice? Why would Jesus die with an unanswered question still on his lips? The father who spoke at the at Jesus's baptism and the transfiguration is silent. Why? Why didn't he say something? Jesus entered deeply into all of our human experiences, but none more than this. He knew and experienced what it means to feel and be forsaken. So let's reflect on his life for a moment. As a boy growing up in Nazareth, Jesus was loved by the people. Scripture actually says he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And when his ministry began, when he first visited the synagogue in Nazareth, the people spoke well of him. But when he started to share of God's mercy to the Gentiles and how he had passed by his chosen people to show kindness to a widow from Sidon and a soldier from Syria, they were furious and ran him out of town and even tried to push him off a cliff. He was forsaken by his boyhood friends and by the villagers who he had known for years. During his earthly ministry, great crowds flocked to hear him and many were eager to be his followers. But when he started to uh, you know, teach, Some strong things, his teaching became difficult for some, it says many drew back and no longer followed him. The scriptures tell us that his own brothers did not believe Jesus during his his ministry and even suggested that he was out of his mind. And when Jesus came to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as we just celebrated this past weekend, The climax of his ministry, great multitudes welcomed him, shouting Hosanna to the Son of David, and they scattered palm branches across his path for a royal entry. But only a few days later, some of the same people who joined the mob, who were screaming madly for his blood, and when it came to a choice between Jesus and a rebel uh, guilty of murder, they said, give us Barabbas. But then, of course, there were his twelve, his inner circle. The followers surely he could count on them one of them unfortunately sold him off to his enemies for 30 pieces of silver and the other one his closest friend Simon Peter denied him with profanity that he ever knew Jesus then all of his friends all the disciples when he was finally arrested forsook him and left him was anyone more wretchedly abandoned than Jesus was but he had to do something far worse immeasurably worse In the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples saw how troubled and how much anguish he was going through, how overwhelmed he was. Because in Matthew 26, verse 38, it says, Jesus said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. And with his sweat like great drops of blood, he fell on the ground and prayed that that this mysterious cup might pass from him, that he might not have to drink it. What was in that cup that filled him with such horror? Was he afraid to die? No. He had known since his early ministry that an untimely death awaited him. Was the coming crucifixion too much to face? No, he had been ready for a long time to face the shame, the rejection, and the agony. Scripture says he marched towards Jerusalem and set his face like flint. He went out to meet his captors when they came to arrest him, and he even refused to call the host of heaven, the angels, to come and deliver him. He never showed the slightest trace of fear about what anyone could do to him. No, this cup must have been something else, something more, something no one else had ever confronted. It was Jesus' portion to bear our sins, to suffer what was due to us, and the scripture states, he was made sin for us. In that cup was the judgment of a holy God against sin, evil, and death. And there on Golgotha, as he bore our sins in his own body on the cross, it was though a shadow passed between his and his father's face. Never had Jesus felt that before. The joy of his entire life had been this, where he said, the father is with me and he hath not left me alone. But now the crowds abandoned him, scorned by his nation, betrayed and denied by his close friends. Jesus identified with sinners and felt himself forsaken by God. So on the cross, there were three things expressed I'd like to share this morning. First, the sacrifice of Christ. Second, the separation from the Father. And third, surrendering in silence. First, sacrifice of Christ. Pastor John recently preached about the images of the atonement. And in the Levitical uh, ceremonial uh, priesthood, every Israelite had their sins uh, symbolically placed on the head of a scapegoat, which was driven out into the howling wilderness. This prophetic picture depicts Christ carrying the sins of the world into the agonizing oblivion of divine justice. Jesus is our scapegoat. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he hath made him to be sin for us. The meaning is not that Jesus became a sinner, but on him representatively fell the collective consequence of our sin. So name your sin one by one. Uncleanness, idolatry, jealousy, strife, wrath, lust, pride, division. Whatever your sin is, Jesus bore it. God made Jesus represent all of these and bore our sins on the cross. And Jesus personally endured all the agony to us and all our punishment of our sins. He suffered an infinite burden of the penalty of sin in a finite period of time. He paid the price not for himself, but for each of us individually, personally, and particularly. I'd like to show a little demonstration of what Jesus bore on the cross for us. And I have here three cups. And uh, I'm actually joined with our online pastor, Pastor Brandon. And so, Brandon, can you choose um, one of these cups? The cup to your right, sir. To my right? All right. Now I'd like you to choose between these two cups. The left cup. The left cup? All right, great. And so I'm gonna label this cup, Christ. This is Christ. And this cup can represent religion. And this cup can represent spirituality. So I have these three realms in which most people seek to find freedom, to find freedom from guilt and forgiveness and hope. And I also have a jug of water. And this water can represent our sin, guilt, shame, evil, fear, and death. And so all these three avenues in which people seek to find freedom from this water. And so I'm going to pour water in all of these cups. And so here... We have these three cups, and we have religion. Religion are man-made structures, our belief systems, uh, trying to be good. And so we endeavor to be good, and we think that if, if we just be good, God is going to forgive us, and we have freedom. Or we have spirituality, our inner feelings, sensory experiences, ideals, and values. If I live by these, I will be guilt-free, and I will be, I'll have hope, and I will have life. But then we also have Jesus. What he offers us is freedom, deliverance, healing, and eternal life. But which of these cups can actually free us from the water that represents our sin, our fear, death, and guilt? Which one? If you look at spirituality, can spirituality take away fear and guilt and sin? No. Can religion take away guilt and sin and fear and death? Nope. That leaves us with Christ. Does Christ set us free from fear and sin and guilt and shame and death? Some of you may be wondering what happened. Well, that's the mystery of the cross as a famous song as one of my favorite hymns amazing love how can it be that thou my god should die for me it's amazing it's a mystery some of you are wondering where did that water go because christ bore in himself all of our sin all of our sorrow all of our shame and death and evil that we may find freedom he gives us new life I'd like to share a story on november 26 2008 A gang of terrorists stormed the Taj Mahal Palace in Mumbai, India. After the carnage that left 200 people dead, a reporter interviewed a guest who had been at the hotel that night for dinner. And the guest described how he and his friends were having dinner around the table, and the assassins walked through and was shooting everyone in sight. And someone grabbed him and pulled him under the table. And as the assassins were killing, they thought they had killed everyone, or so they had thought. But miraculously, this man survived. And the interviewer asked him, how is it that everyone around your table died, but you escaped and you weren't killed? And the man replied and said, I suppose because I was covered in someone else's blood, they took me for dead. And this is actually a perfect metaphor of God's gift through Jesus Christ to each one of us. Because he paid the penalty for us. Because we are covered by his blood of his sacrifice we may have eternal life and we have the opportunity to live. Isn't that wonderful? It was not the volume of sin that sent Christ to the cross. It was the fact of sin. The second thing we see from the cross is the separation from the Father. In the agony of Jesus, when we have this graphic picture of the nature and the torment of hell, in the agony that he endured in this process, Jesus endured what it would be like for someone who would reject God. When we look at the torment of Christ on the cross, we are warned of what it might be look like if we reject the offer of salvation because without that offer, we will have eternal separation from the Father. The physical suffering on the cross was reflective of something far worse. The agony of hell is the experience of being forsaken, which as we shared is one of the saddest words in our language. In the Greek, the word forsaken is made of three words. First, to leave, meaning to abandon. Second, down, suggesting defeat and helplessness. And third, in, referring to the place or circumstance. So basically, forsaken means the total meaning of the word is someone in a state of defeat, of helplessness, in the midst of a hostile circumstance. All during Jesus' earthly ministry, he knew what it meant to be forsaken by family, his nation, and even at the cross by his own disciples. But now God turns from him. And it's a mystery. God revealed forsakenness as the worst agony that a condemned will ever know so that people will understand the seriousness of the separation from God and all what is good. You know, in the wilderness, when Jesus was fasting for 40 days, Jesus suffered, but an angel came to help him. In the garden of Gethsemane, when he was in agony, in prayer, an angel came to minister to him. But on the cross, as he hung naked on that cross, there was no help and no intervention. The moment in the Father turned his face from the Son, as he bore the responsibility of the sin of the entire world, that experience was the most agonizing of all what Jesus had ever went through. The third thing expressed in the cross is surrendering in silence. You see, this life is not a journey towards certainty, nor it's always a journey guided by easy answers. It is, though, a journey of trust through unknown territory even to a place of forsakenness. The cross embodied the supreme moment of isolation and public humiliation when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that very moment, possibly his loneliest moment on this earth, while he said those words, he was in the center of his Father's will. Even while bearing the consequence of all of our sin, he was at the center of God's will. And knowing that, On the cross, Jesus declared and said these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. From the cross, from the place of unanswered questions, Jesus commits his life to his Father. Even with unanswered questions and the forsakenness of the cross, Jesus surrenders his life in trust. And so you and I are similarly called as followers of Jesus to this place of paradox. It's a difficult place where questions often go unanswered. And where our earnest desire for an answer must be sacrificed as we place our trust in our loving Father. And so this morning I'd like to ask you, will you and I surrender our unanswered questions? Will you surrender your fears? Are you willing to trust and follow God even when life does not make sense? Or you have no answer and you're left wandering in the dark? Jesus shared in our human experience. He has been where we have been and felt what we have felt. He understands us and stands in our place and carries our burden and has paid our debt. As the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 6, he says, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Most importantly, his forsakenness means that we will never be abandoned by God. This is great news, friends. This great exchange. He is condemned so I may be forgiven. He dies so I might live. He drinks the cup of suffering so that I may take from his pierced hands the cup of salvation. Now that doesn't mean we won't feel abandoned. The key word is feel or feel absent. Some of the greatest saints experienced an overwhelming feeling of despair and abandonment. Even Apostle Paul, the great Paul, writes in 2 Corinthians 1.8, he said, We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. He was overwhelmed many times through his ministry, wondering, God, why? But because of Good Friday, because Jesus was forsaken, we, you and I, we will be accepted and will never be forsaken. We may feel forsaken, but always know that God will never forsake you or leave you. And so as I close this morning, I'd like to leave us with three responses to when we feel forsaken, forgotten, or even frustrated. In Psalm 22, the very psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist in that psalm gives three responses in times of forsakenness. This is what we should do when we feel forsaken. First, we may feel forsaken, but not prayerless. In the first section from verses 1 to 11, the psalmist writes, particularly in verse 2, Every day I call to you, my God we may feel forsaken but we're not prayerless prayer is a great resource for a troubled soul we need to pray even when there are no answers we need to pray even when there are no solutions or blessings or gifts or healing or miracle we need to pray even when it seems there's no other way although it seems like our prayers are not being heard we must keep asking we must keep seeking and we must keep knocking there's no other way through our pain but to meet god in prayer Prayer is a conversation where we can genuinely express to God our doubts and fears and our disappointments our discouragements our disillusionments our disagreements and our despair. And this is the path to intimate spirituality We know that we've entered a deeper level of faith when we can be honest with God Where we are vulnerable and open to God about our struggles The second thing the psalmist says to do is that we may feel forsaken, but we are not powerless from the second section, verses 12 to 21, he writes particularly in verse 15, My strength hath dried up like a sun-baked clake. When you and I feel forsaken, abandoned, and hopeless, our inner person may become weak, demotivated, or confused. It is as if it was formless and empty, and those dark periods of our life where is where the Spirit of God starts to move. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the Scripture says the earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters. But it says there the Spirit of God hovered upon the surface of the waters. And so it's in those moments, in those feelings of forsakenness, where the Spirit of God can move. As Paul writes in Ephesians 3, verse 16, I pray that from His glorious and unlimited resources, He will empower you with inner strength through His Spirit. And so will you allow the Holy Spirit to fill you with strength and power? What is the power Paul is talking about in these verses in Ephesians 3? It's the power of His love. When you and I feel forsaken, may the Holy Spirit fill you with His power, the power of His love, to feel the assurance and the comfort of God's love for you, that He cares for you, that He's with you, and that you are His precious child, love beyond measure. And the third thing the psalmist expresses here from verses 22 to 28, the last section, is that you and I may feel forsaken, but we are not praiseless. In verse 22, the psalmist writes, I will praise you among your assembled people. You see, praise in this context may not be celebration. Because in our deepest pain and our loneliness and devastation loss, God's not asking you to celebrate and have a party, but to praise. And one aspect of praise here is gratitude or thankfulness. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 18 says, Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Can you surrender this morning and just say, thank you? Maybe just let's do that right now. Can you just say, God, thank you. Whatever you're going through this morning, just say, God, thank you. Now, it's probably hard for some of us And some of you may even push back and say, I just can't do it. Do you ever wonder why we call this day Good Friday? What's so good about the death of Christ in the natural sense? A mother lost her son. The followers stood at the cross weeping and crying because their friend breathed their last breath. Everything Jesus built over the three years of ministry was gone. What the world did not see was that in that moment of forsakenness, God was doing something much bigger and something eternal. And it was good. As Habakkuk says in chapter 3, verse 17, 18, Habakkuk writes, when everything fails, he says, yet I will praise and rejoice in the Lord. Still I will praise. Why? The good news is, as we've come to embrace it, that we are never really ever forsaken. God promises us he's with us always. I'll close with this story. When our son Micah was 14 months old, we noticed a scratch in his right eye. After noticing he was tearing a lot in that eye, we took him to the doctor, and the doctor noticed that there was a, a paint chip in his uh, eye from his crib that was latched to his cornea. And immediately he told us to take him to his sick kids, and they decided to do a small surgical procedure to remove it. And to prepare for that procedure, they had to put four sets of drops in his eyes and then give him medication to put him to sleep. And for each set, we had to hold him down, and he was crying profusely and, and screaming, And I was imagining what he was thinking, and he was wondering, where is his daddy? Why wasn't his daddy stopping this pain or the trauma or these strangers from holding him down and trying to do something to his eyes? What was happening? Why is this happening? Where are my parents? What he would realize is that his own daddy was one of the people holding him down. And at times we may not know what's happening, why it's happening, where is God? It may seem that God has abandoned us and that he is absent. It's awful and painful and tearful. And what may seem worse is that when we carefully examine the situation, sometimes we may realize it was God's hand that was involved in our painful situation for the furtherance of our good, for good. See, Micah didn't realize that his daddy was holding him down so that they could get drops put in his eyes, and then they can put him to sleep to remove that pain chip from his eye so that his eye would not be permanently damaged. Sometimes we may feel forsaken, but we must surrender and trust that God is with us and he's looking out for our greater good. There was a moment of pain for our son to remove a long-term period of damage to his eye. Now when Micah woke up from his sedation, you know what his first reaction was? Was it anger? Was it a refusal to come to his parents? No, immediately as he woke up, he embraced his parents. He embraced us. And so too, us, this should be our response in moments of disillusionment and despair and frustration is to embrace the Father because in Hebrews 13, verse 5, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so when we go through trying periods in our lives and when we feel forsaken, when we're convinced that we have been forsaken by God and by others, remember, he will never leave you nor forsake you. And on this Good Friday, as we remember what Jesus endured, remember this great exchange. He was forsaken so that we might be accepted. And if you're feeling forsaken, forgotten, abandoned, turn to the Father in prayer. Be thankful this morning for the sacrifice of Christ and allow the power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen you with His love, to grant you that assurance that you are His child. Would you join with me this morning as we we pray? There's a prayer that will be on the screen. And if you feel comfortable, would you recite this prayer as we close this morning together? Let's pray. Father, please give me strength when I am weak. Love when I feel forsaken. Courage when I am afraid. Comfort when I am alone. Hope when I feel rejected. And peace when I am in turmoil. In Jesus' name. Amen.